you're in the Gospel of Luke, I'll just invite you to page back uh, several pages to the, or the Gospel of John. I'll ask you to page back a few pages to the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke chapter 11, and we'll begin in verse 33. The Gospel according to Luke chapter 11, verse 33. If you'd like to use one of the red Bibles in the seats found in front of you, this morning's text is on page 870, 870 in those red Bibles. Luke's Gospel, chapter 11, beginning in verse, verse 33. Well, last week we began what's turning out to be the, the first of a two-part series on the topic of, of outreach, uh, the matter of engagement with those around us who do not currently profess faith in Jesus. And I'll just say this straight out of the gate here, that if you're you're with us and you're not a Christian this morning, first of all, we are grateful that you're here. Um, we hope that we would have any given Sunday sprinkled among our fellowship, those who don't currently profess faith in Jesus. We're glad that you're here. We want you here. We know that you're here in a church this size. You are most welcome in this place. And at the same time, as you may guess, preaching is frequently, typically intended for the choir. You hear, we're just preaching to the choir. Well, that's what we do most Sundays. You preach to the choir. Um, the proper subjects of biblical instruction include, of course, the people of God themselves. And last week and this week, we're discussing the topic of, of evangelism. That is, speaking the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus into the lives of those who do not yet know him. And I would stress, yet know him. Evangelism, interestingly, for many of us Christians, is the reverse of easy. Isn't that true? We repeatedly wonder how in the world we're going to find an open door uh, to say a good word for our King, to say something about Jesus to unbelievers in our midst. And then we get that open door, and we find ourselves often stumbling and stammering our way through an awkward conversation You'd think it might be simpler for us to bear witness to the work of Jesus in our lives, but it commonly proves to be a somewhat bewildering and sometimes frustrating experience, truth be told. And I think this sort of thing might serve to discourage and dissuade us more frequently than it does, were it not for Jesus' own experience. Um, Jesus' own experience with those who didn't believe in him. We learned last week in chapter 11, verses 29 to 32, that Jesus routinely encountered people in the midst of his ministry who were at least unpersuaded, uh, if not downright hostile to his claims. And in the example we considered last Sunday, when Jesus came toe-to-toe with the the opposition of the crowds in front of him, uh, he prophesied his future death and resurrection. He reminded them that one wiser than Solomon has come. He also told them that a preacher greater than Jonah had come. And so the the big idea last week with the three points that flowed out of it was this. It was when it seems like the folks on your list of five would rather walk by sight and not by faith in Jesus, then three things. Point them toward Christ's unparalleled power. Secondly, point them toward Christ's unsurpassed wisdom. And then finally, point them toward Christ's unprecedented preaching. Well, this morning we pick up our text in the very next verse, and what we discover is that he's still addressing the same group of people. Verse 29, Jesus is responding to a growing crowd around him, but by the time we arrive to verse 33, if you just glance at it, there's no indication whatsoever that his audience has 
has changed. Now, the connection between what Jesus says in verses 29 to 32 and then verses 33 to 36, that's not as easy to see. That's what I had to ponder this week. At first glance, it's not obvious, but I believe the more that we peer into this passage, the more that we're going to find evidence that Jesus still has some things to teach us about outreach. So this is the second half of a two-part teaching, and I, I don't think we're going to need a whole lot of time to get up to speed. Um, in fact, we might even finish up early this morning. I know that might be unusual, but it might be a blessing to you. Sometimes less is more, right? So let's, let's begin with the, the main idea and then the first of three points. First, first big idea here. When it seems like the folks on your list of five are unmoved by Christ's power, wisdom, and preaching, then please understand, number one, that they still have to reckon with the public nature of Jesus' ministry. When it seems like the folks on your list of five are unmoved by Christ's power, wisdom, and preaching, that's last week, then please understand they still have to reckon with the public nature of Jesus' ministry. Now, in, in Luke eleven thirty three, Jesus says something that we tend to be more familiar with in another context. And that context would be Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount, specifically Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16. In Matthew 5, 14 to 16, Jesus is preaching to believing disciples, and he says um, something that he also says in 11.33 here in Luke. In Matthew, he says to his disciples, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now notice, if you're looking at Luke 11.33, it's nearly a word-for-word representation of what Matthew gave us in Matthew 5.15. But it's clearly, it's decidedly with a different context. So Jesus says in verse 33, No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Okay, this is a Bible study question. What's that doing here? Jesus has been warning the unbelieving crowds that they run a very dangerous risk in brushing aside his power, his wisdom, his preaching. So much so that the queen of the south and the men of Nineveh will rise up with the men of his generation and condemn them because Even they responded to the wisdom of Solomon and the preaching of Jonah, and yet one greater than Jonah, one greater than Solomon is before them. So why does he say what he says in verse 33? What's the connection with no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light? I think the connection is this. Rather than seeing a reference to us in verse 33, which we are accustomed to do because of how Matthew talks in Matthew 5.15, Based upon how Jesus uses the phrase in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew, we might be thinking that way. But rather than seeing a reference to us in verse 33, Jesus is making a reference to himself. Think about it. He calls the crowd in front of him and others in first century Israel who rejected his ministry an evil generation. Remember that? Verse 29. He told them twice they would not be able to escape the judgment where these pagan peoples would would rise up and condemn them. And now here in verse 33, what he's been driving at all along, he makes abundantly clear that his presence in the world is like a lit lamp set on a stand, not tucked away in a cellar, not under a basket, set on a stand so that all who enter may see the light. 
So the, the simple point that Jesus is making is that try as they may, the folks in front of him who are undecided about him or maybe decided against him, these folks cannot sidestep the power and wisdom of preaching of, the Jesus, of Jesus of Nazareth. It is an exercise in futility. And the reason why is because in the midst of this increasingly dark world, Jesus shines an unavoidable light. We've encountered this teaching a number of times already in our study of Luke's gospel, uh, the person and work of Jesus as light. So when Zechariah is prophesying at the temple of the soon-to-be-born Jesus in Luke 1, 78 and 79, we read of the Jewish expectation of the Messiah that the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Interestingly, just one chapter later in Luke 2.32, old Simeon, who's similar to Zechariah, an old man looking for the consolation of Israel, he said of the newborn Jesus that he was to be, in Luke 2.32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people Israel. And then, of course, if we were to hop out of Luke's gospel into the gospel of John, we'd see the most vivid and most memorable descriptions of Jesus as light. Uh, We heard one of them already read for us. John 1, 4, and 5 says of Jesus, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. Or, as Jesus says to the unbelieving crowd, chapter 11, verse 33, No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that all who enter may see the light. I, I hope if you're thinking through what's the application for this, that you're you're beginning to sense an encouraging practical application, particularly if you're someone who loves Jesus and longs for him to be known in the lives of those around you. Jesus is saying this, he simply cannot be dodged. Jesus won't be dismissed. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. And to find some way of angling your life and your way around him, what you discover is that it, it cannot be done. I've shared this image with you before because it's just so powerful in my life and, and maybe it's helpful to you. I, I once heard Bill Hybels describe Jesus as an aircraft carrier in a crowded bay. Can you picture that? Like, this thing's coming into the harbor one way or the other. And if you're a little ship, you can navigate port You can navigate starboard, but the one thing you cannot do is remain unalert or remain aloof. Um, I hope this encourages you as you seek to pray for and care for and share Jesus with those who do not yet profess faith in him. Look, they can reject him, and some do. Some do. And that that would be an honest assessment for Jesus to be rejected. But most people don't reject Jesus. Most people have their feet firmly planted in midair with relationship to Jesus. Isn't that the case? There are some atheists out there. I wouldn't deny it. But most people aren't atheists. You know what most people are? They are apatheists. They just haven't come to a decision yet. Many people simply don't care. They're undecided or they're ambivalent. They're uncommitted. And that will not last. Not according to verse 33. Jesus cannot abide that. And in time, we're going to discover that it's attention that Jesus will not abide. So when it seems like the folks on your list of five are unmoved by Christ's power 
his wisdom, his preaching, then please understand they still have to reckon with the public nature of Jesus' ministry. Second point today. When it seems like the folks on your list of five are unmoved by Christ's power, his wisdom, and his preaching, then please understand they are likely counting the cost of opening their souls to Jesus' scrutiny. When it seems like the folks on your list of five are unmoved by Christ's power, wisdom, and preaching, then please understand they are likely counting the cost of opening their souls to Jesus' scrutiny. Look with me again, our text this time, verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. So verse 34, he says, your eye is the lamp of your body. Notice, whatever this lamp is in verse 34, it's a different lamp than the one in verse 33. In verse 33, the lamp is is Jesus, Jesus' life and his teaching. Eventually, it's Jesus' suffering and death and burial, resurrection, ascension, and soon return. That's the first lamp. But here in verse 34, we have another lamp. You see it? It's a different lamp because he says, your eye is the lamp of your body. Right away also, I think the thoughtful biblical interpreter is wondering this. Does he mean the eyes of our heads or the eyes of our hearts? It's a good question. The answer, in some sense, is yes. Is Jesus talking about the eyes of our heads or the eyes of our hearts? Yeah, yes. I was meeting with a couple of guys that I'm training on the path toward ordination in the free church um, just this past Tuesday, and I shared my sermon text with them because I was so stumped on verse 34, particularly that first sentence. I just couldn't make heads or tails of it earlier last week. And Kelly Johnson, the guy that coached me through my sabbatical a handful of years ago, said something that was really helpful and and quite simple. Kelly just looked at the verse and said, you know, the things that we see become a part of us, don't they? You can't unsee some things. I thought that was really good. I just wrote that down and I thought that's going to pay some dividends as I study. We don't so neatly separate the eyes of our heads and the eyes of our hearts. We run down the pathway of one back to the other again. The eyes of our heads tend to do the bidding of the eyes of our hearts. And at the same time, the eyes of our hearts are greatly dependent upon the eyes of our heads. So Jesus says, your eye is the lamp of your body. What does it mean? Well, consider the service that your, your eyes, the eyes of your head, render the rest of your body. Our eyes detect light. That's what they're there to do. That's their job. That's their reason for being. Light reflects off of an object, and if that object is in your field of vision, you see it. And you say, I, I see it, I see it. So Jesus says, your eye is the lamp of your body. Now, obviously, Jesus was not an ophthalmologist, right? He made the eye, but he was not an ophthalmologist. There comes a point when this literal discussion of the eyes of our heads gives way to the greater discussion of the eyes of our, what? Hearts. Has to be. Has to be. We know that because of what he goes on to say in verse 34. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad... 
your body is full of darkness. Notice how Jesus speaks of the healthy eye and the bad eye. Now, I don't know if you know this about me, but I have bad eyes. I have really bad eyes. My, I don't know what my vision is, but it ain't good. <laughs> I, my dad calls it Abernethy-itis. We all have it in my family. I've worn contacts and glasses since I was probably 10 years old, maybe earlier. Um, I have astigmatism in my left eye that requires a special toric lens. Anyway, it's bad. I've got bad eyes. Is that what Jesus is talking about here? That's not what he's talking about here. Here's how we know. The word for bad in verse 34 in the Greek is the word paneros. And not surprisingly, the same word that's translated bad in verse 34 is the word up in verse 29 when Jesus is speaking of an evil generation. Exact same word in the original. That's one of the links between last week and this week. In fact, I didn't know how to bridge into this week's sermon until I realized that word was the same. Evil generation, evil eyes. It's the same group of people. Now, my eyesight may be bad, but it's not evil, right? Nearsightedness is a type of suffering, but it's not a type of sinning. Can we agree? We don't need to repent of astigmatism, do we? Maybe we do. I hope we don't. Jesus is making a moral judgment in verse 34. And that's why we know that he's moved from the eyes of our heads to the eyes of our hearts. Here's what John Piper said about this verse. I found it most helpful. Commenting on verse 34, Piper wrote, I take this to mean that the way the lamp of Jesus is a lamp for you is that you see it for what it really is. Jesus is saying that if your eye sees him for who he really is, then you are full of light. But if you don't see him for who he really is, then you are full of darkness. And then we have the crescendo in verse 35. It's the most harrowing harrowing warning in this text. Jesus says, Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. Again, Piper is helpful here as he comments. In other words, there is much that passes for light through the eye that is not light. And there are many bright things in this world that keep us from seeing the true light of Christ, just like city lights keep you from seeing the stars. End quote. That's, that's really good. And it's incredibly practical as we consider what it means for us to influence other people toward our Savior. So imagine the situation. You're regularly praying for people on your list of five. You're asking the Holy Spirit to do the heavy lifting, what you cannot do. You're asking Him to convict people of sin. You are entreating the Father to draw them to the Son. You're praying that God may just kick open a door for conversation so that you can say a good word for Jesus into their lives. And by God's grace, it happens. Have you ever been surprised by that? You pray for an open door, and then He kicks one open. It's big enough for you to, just to drive a Mack truck through, right? You couldn't miss it. And you didn't. So you shared the good news of Jesus with them. You point them toward Christ. And they hear you out. Um, They're they're politely listening. But they're clearly not at a place of repentance either. Right? You ever been there? You know what's going on? Verses 34 and 35 are going on. Jesus put it this way in John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world But people loved the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light 
and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. The old Princeton theologian J. Gresham Machen once said this, Light may seem at times to be an impertinent intruder, but it is always beneficial in the end. <laughs> I've always loved that sentence. Um, is, believe me, the, the message of the gospel, you know, the, the convictions that we would like to see become the convictions of other people, that's actually not the biggest issue on the table. Because people see it this way, that the biggest issue is not coming to understand the, the facts and the data of the death and resurrection of Jesus. The biggest issue in the minds of, of unbelieving people oftentimes is worship. They may not call it that, but that's what it is. Because following Jesus always means changing. It means embracing a radically new and wonderfully fresh pathway. In fact, that's what keeps them from coming to him in the first place. So the first point today is that we ought to find encouragement knowing that people can't stay ambivalent about Jesus forever. That's encouraging. That's point one. But the second point here that ought to serve as encouragement to us is we consider the fact that some people don't believe in Jesus, and it's not a matter of the mind. It's a matter of the heart. It's not as if you could answer that last perfect question, and that would be the, the tipping point for them to come into the, the kingdom. No, some people for whom you are praying are already wrestling with, and they are wrestling with what it would mean for them to turn from their sin and to put their trust squarely in Jesus in the hands of one who died to save them from their sin. So when it seems like folks on your list of five are unmoved by Christ's power, his wisdom, and his preaching, please understand. Take the long view here. They are likely counting the cost of opening their souls to Jesus' scrutiny. One final point today, then we're, then we're done. When it seems like the folks on your list of five are unmoved by Christ's power, wisdom, and preaching, then please understand they may one day lay hold the spoils of Jesus' victory. When it seems like the folks on your list of five are unmoved by Christ's power, wisdom, and preaching, then please understand they may yet one day lay hold of the spoils of Jesus' victory. Verse 36 ends with a note of hope. Again, remember, he's still talking to a hostile crowd. If verse 35 is a sober warning, verse 36 is a very hopeful picture. It's a picture of what it might look like for the people whom Jesus is addressing to one day open up their lives to his light. And the image is arresting. Let's, let's read it. 11.36 in Luke. Jesus says, If then, talking to, to the evil generation, he says, If your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Isn't this just anticipating? Isn't it just buoyant with hope? It's pregnant with possibility? Jesus is still speaking to the same crowd of people he's dealing with in verse 29. These are the ones that are the evil generation. And yet here in 36, the tone has changed. In his final words to them, Jesus offers a picture of a preferred future. We'd call it a, a vision statement. I know people who followed Jesus for years who long for the reality of what he describes in the first half of this verse where he says, if then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark. That's the phrase, those final four words, having no part dark. Jesus has a vision for the people to whom he is preaching. And the obvious question for every Christ follower here today is, is do you? Do you do this? Do you speak this way to the people on your list of five, this winsomely? 
this hopefully, this expectantly. Have you ever said to someone, you know, God loves you and I have a wonderful plan for your life. I want to see you change and grow and come into the light, having no part dark, wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. If I'm reading this verse correctly, it's as if Jesus has a vision for these people that they might one day become just like him. Because no one after lighting a lamp puts it under a cellar, in a cellar under a basket, but on a stand that those who enter may see its light. In other words, Jesus is anticipating that if they begin to take the light of Christ into their lives, they too will become a lamp set on a stand leading other people to him. And just so we're clear that this isn't wishful thinking, I just want to conduct a quick survey. Um, two questions, I think, will, will be enough to prove this point. How many of you here today wish to be more effective in leading people to Jesus than you currently are? All right, that was a slam dunk. Second question, how many of you had these exact same convictions 25 years ago? Okay, a few. A few. Now, I know some of you weren't born 25 years ago, but look around, right? The point is illustrated. People change. We come in darkness, we step into the light, and the light begins to invade us. Jesus knows how to transform lives, and he does it over time, deep in our hearts, through his word, and he does it in the context of the local church. So please be hopeful. Get a vision. Get a verse 36 vision about the people that you're seeking to witness to. One day, some of them are going to be more effective evangelists than you and I are, probably far more. So stay at it. Don't give way to despair. God is up to far more than you realize when you're seeking to open your mouth to your list of five. So when it seems like folks on your list of five are unmoved by Christ's power, wisdom, and preaching, please understand, they may one day yet lay hold the spoils of Jesus' victory. Let's review. When it seems like the folks on your list of five are unmoved by Christ's power, wisdom, and preaching, please understand three realities. First, they still have to reckon with the public nature of Jesus' ministry. No way getting around it. Secondly, they are likely, more is going on than you realize, they are counting the cost of opening their souls to Jesus' scrutiny. And third, they may yet one day lay hold the spoils of Jesus' victory. Our text today took a look beneath the surface of the lives of those among whom that we live and work and play with. Our mission as a church is to be and make disciples of Jesus, and that means that practically we live out that mission in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our places of business. These, these precious people who don't know Jesus that lie within our sphere of influence, they may look bulletproof. It may seem as though the good news of the resurrection, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus and the comprehensive rescue he offers them isn't lodging very deeply in their lives. But the message of this text is that we need to take the long view. We need to take the long view. There's always more going on that we may realize. So keep praying for them. Keep caring for them. Keep sharing with them. And above all, keep in mind that Jesus knows how to slip past the surface to penetrate through to that inside layer of life where all the action happens. So be hopeful in evangelism this week. Be hopeful. Now, in next week's text, we plan to shift gears fairly dramatically. We've spent the last two weeks looking outward as a fellowship as we think about evangelism into the lives of the unbelieving people around us. One week from today, we're going to allow Jesus to shine that light inward. 
Jesus is going to begin to orient toward people of faith, in other words. And Jesus' piercing diagnosis of the crowds in chapter 11 is met with equal, perhaps greater force when he focuses his teaching on those who regard themselves as insiders. So next Sunday is an opportunity for those who are conservative Bible believers to heed the words of Jesus. And I don't think it's too much of a spoiler alert looking ahead to the sorts of cautions and temptations that Jesus points out for conservative Bible believers in the first century. They are all but identical that those who are conservative Bible believers that face in the 21st century. So get ready for the scalpel next week, okay? But right now, let's pray.